Welcome to the Talking Ed Podcast, presented by GSBA, a show that makes discussing public education policy interesting. Here's your host, Angela, Scott, and Justin. All right, welcome back to the GSBA Talking Ed Podcast. Um, Today we're going to cover quite a few topics. Um, we've got some things that uh, we want to touch on and recap a little bit. We're going to work through what's been happening, um, where, what's been signed, uh, where are we going. Um, you know, want to start with just some opening thoughts, uh, Scott, Angela. Um, things have changed drastically, obviously, from January uh, to the end of March or the beginning of March, and then starting June 15th to finish out those two weeks of the session, there was a lot that changed, priorities changed. Um, give us a feeling of, of the, the difference and, and the atmosphere and the priorities um, and the thought process. Yeah, I, you know, being down at the Capitol for the restart of session, was unusual to say the least you know day one you know day one of session is always kind of a a hornet's nest of activity there are always things buzzing around people always around people excited to talk to one another you know to compare it to something you talk about you know people who go to church on christmas and easter well you have some folks who show up to to session on the first day and the last day or first day crossover and last day and so I expected it to be a lot like that, where everybody would be back after this break and be excited and be back in the in the Capitol. And I, I pulled up that first day and there were plenty of parking spots available and you get into the Capitol and there was nobody there. I think I think at one point I counted 10 people um, in the hallway. Wow. Um, it was That's because they were doing what I did. <laughs> <laughs> I follow the governor's executive order for those of a certain age or um, underlying health conditions. And so I stayed home and let Scott go down there. Um, And so we got it. We got two different perspectives of it because you can follow a lot of it online now with the webcast meetings. Um, The the chamber action has been online for some time. Um, And so I followed things that way. And then, texted with with Scott and and others down there and kept up but I think that a lot of people did the same thing oh yeah there's definitely even just the education groups um a lot of folks did that a lot of folks watched from home and stayed away for the most part I mean some of those committee hearings we had and we had a handful over that two-week stretch um you know where they would usually be full in on a normal session day weren't i mean we would you have they cap the room capacity for all the hearings you know you can only have so many people in the audience and i don't know that they ever uh reached that threshold at any point i mean that shows you how few people were down there um in person yeah do uh did you guys i mean were the what was the feeling from the legislators you know that i guess was there a lot of mask wearing a lot of distancing um a lot of mask wearing um a lot of mask wearing and have a lot of distancing and I think that I, I think the thought was you know we're wearing masks we don't necessarily need to distance 
Um, you know, the governor's office folks, I did talk to them a few times and they, they, they were masked and distanced. So they were, they were on top of both of them. But um, now for the members themselves, not more masks, um, not a ton of distancing, but I will say it was the funny thing to see from day, you know, the 15th to whatever, on the 15th, there were a lot of masks in the Capitol. Everybody's wearing a mask. Everybody was mindful of that. And as the week went by and as the second week went by, you saw fewer and fewer masks. And because it got to the point where you would try to talk to someone with your mask on and you couldn't hear what they were saying, they couldn't hear what you were saying. So you'd eventually just pull your mask off and have a conversation with someone. And then when you got done, you put your mask back on. Um, so there was a lot of that. There's a lot of you know, mask, uh, mask Olympics pulling on and off, but, but uh, the distancing wasn't, you know, they, they closed down the, the hallways between the chambers. So where you'd usually go over and pull folks off the ropes and those hallways can get, and Angela can attest to this, those, those hallways get so crowded and so backed up um, that you are pushing your way through and, and, and trying to fight crowds um, to close those off. And so there was oh, that area, there was no, obviously no, um, no issue with, with keeping social distance because nobody was over there. Yeah. Yeah, and the two chambers had different rules too. Each chamber sets up its own operational rules. And on the House side, they were requiring masks. And the House also split up the members and had them in three or four different places. So part of them were in the chamber, part of them were in the appropriations room, 341. And then the gallery was the other place they had them, Scott? Yeah, they had, yeah. They had them on the, on the, in the chamber floor, they had them in the gallery. And then they also had them in the appropriations room. Um, and because they were so spread out, they had to do a uh, roll call vote for every vote they took. It was a roll call And that vote. was painful. Oh, oh, it was so painful. I mean, it would, whereas, you know, they were there qu quite late on, on signing die, which is, you know, normal, but with an abbreviated kind of finished session, it in all, it, frankly, it should have gone quicker. That's the, the, the funny thing about this is they should have been wrapped up on the signing die by like seven o'clock instead of 11, whatever it was. Um, the house took so long because they had to roll call votes. So what would take, you know, 30 seconds to a minute to vote was taking eight to 10 minutes, 15 minutes sometimes if people weren't in the, in the chamber and had to hunt them down. So, that, I mean, that drew the night out quite a bit on that. that because I think line. you had mentioned to me a while back, Scott, were there overflow rooms where they had to to find the legislators and, and go through the roll call even in overflow rooms? Yeah, they were they were tracking them down. Um, wow. They were yeah, because the, the ones over in 341, they had to go over there to, to 341 to get the roll call there. Yeah, and it was weird. They had like video cameras set up. So if you're in 341, you were kind of watching what's going on the floor on a big screen. And I believe you could watch, I, I think, and then this may, this may be incorrect, but I'm, I'm pretty sure in the chamber, they also had a video feed of 341. So you could kind of see what both were doing. Uh, so it was, uh, yeah, it's just a weird, it's a weird deal. But to Angela's point, the Senate was, they were all there. They're all in person. Um, they closed the gallery off except for the press. And so the press was a lot up in the Senate gallery, but, but no um, public up there. Yeah, the, the House started out at least requiring everybody to wear a mask um, in the chamber and in their committees. Um, from what Scott said, I, I guess by the end of it, they were 
getting a little lax about that. And I know the speaker was reminded them several times that everybody had to wear a mask. Um, the Senate um, did not require it. Uh, I'm not sure if they used the word recommended or just left it to discretion. But anyway, it was so that was just part of the difference in the way the two of them handled things. Yeah. Well, it's um, obviously uh, I'd love to hear a little bit from you both how priorities changed from January, February, early March to two weeks in June. What what were some of the biggest pieces um, that that you saw the from a priority standpoint? Obviously, the budget. I mean, everyone knew that one mm -hmm. was coming. Yeah. Were I, there I some mean, other things because um, because then we can begin to to kind of talk about. Uh, that will help lead us into talking about what what passed, how it passed, what it looks like, um, and what didn't. Yeah, I mean, I think the last, I mean, it's crazy to think about, um, the last two weeks of session before the, before the suspension, the, I mean, the main topics of conversation were tax cut, teacher pay raise. That they were, there was a fight between the chambers and the governor's office and, and different factions there, thereof of, do we give a tax break? Do we give the teacher pay raise? Do we do neither? Uh, you know, eventually they settled on this compromise and it, it looked like we had a deal. Like there's going to be some sort of tax cut. There's going to be some sort of teacher pay raise. We'll move along and that'll be that. And then after the shutdown, I don't, the, the thought of the teacher pay raise and the thought of a tax cut just didn't even come into in the conversation it wasn't even there i mean it wasn't a well maybe we can still try to do that nope it was just gone um so you look at that i, I do think the interesting thing though there i don't recall and angel you might have heard um, some of this talk before the suspension i don't remember a ton about casinos but then after this this uh, uh suspension casinos were right up there at the top i mean people were talking about either in you know brick and mortar casinos or online sports gambling or, or various uh, iterations thereof, that seemed to kind of dominate, you know, former Mississippi governor Haley Barber uh, was seen around the hallways kind of more than some of the normal lobbyists uh, you'd see um, working the, the gambling stuff. So I thought that was interesting that that was kind of floating out there um, that really yeah, wasn't I, beforehand. I think they were grabbing the opportunity. Um, I mean, they've been trying for several years now to get a casino bill passed. Um, there have been efforts at horse raising, horse racing bills. Um, and then last year, the Supreme Court cleared the way for online sports betting. Um, so until that decision, we couldn't have done that. So that was a new option. Um, and when everything fell apart with the pandemic and they were looking at the loss in revenue, um, there were so, a few weeks there, especially that the revenue picture was looking really, really dire and without any idea of when it was going to shift, um, or really a solid idea of what it actually looked like. It felt really bad with, with everybody sheltering in place. Um, and so people weren't going out and spending and so many businesses had to, to be closed for the shelter in place requirements and all those things. So those who had been pushing the casino um, idea saw their opportunity and so they decided to jump in. Um, the online sports betting, I'll have to say I actually was surprised that did not get through. 
the casinos require a constitutional amendment, but the online sports betting, the theory was it could just be a bill because it could fall under the existing lottery um, constitutional amendment. And so they, they wouldn't have to do that. The Braves, Hawks, Falcons were all uh, in support of that. Um, but in, in the end, none of that happened. Um, no, another I think kind of tying that to education, I think where that kind of hit a roadblock was um, some of the local radio hosts and commentators um, were kind of stirring up some hoopla around the Hope Scholarship and, and arguing that the new sports betting or new casinos would gut the Hope Scholarship. Um, and so I think that that played a huge role in kind of stopping things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because another fight with it has, has been not only the morality or immorality of, of uh, gambling um, or the effects of opening a casino, um, but also how do we use the money? Because, of course, every interest group wants the money. Um, they're going to have to add something sooner or later to shore up the Hope Scholarship in pre-K. Um, and so the sports betting was going to that, but there was uh, an idea floated late, I believe, about a portion of it being for a needs-based scholarship. Um, and so we're going to continue to see those again um, and to see some kind of push to add it, whether it's to expand the economy, to shore up hope, or whatever um, reason they use it, we'll see it. But some other things that happened that changed along the way was a lot of the policy kinds of bills just fell away. Um, like uh, one of the ones that we had followed was the return to work bill. It was House Bill 336. Um, started out very broadly. Shaw Blackman was the one who was carrying that and he wanted it to apply to everybody and not have any limitations. And it kept getting more and more limited before he could get it out of the house. And once we went back after the pandemic, that was gone. Um, teacher loan forgiveness started out um, and then that kept, that also kept morphing into changes and that went away. Um, so there were a lot of bills, uh, the Senate Education Committee passed a whole lot of bills out of it that never saw the lot of day on the House side. They may not have anyway, uh, but after the pandemic and uh, return to the session, um, I think House Ed had maybe one meeting. Uh, they had one or two. It was yeah. They, they didn't meet. Yeah, they didn't do much. They did. So there was a real priority, whatever their priority <laughs> rating was, but they seemed to really have a, a priority around which bills were going to go. And so we didn't do the usual song and dance of the end of session with a million and one committee meetings and piling everything into rules. Um, and then people trying to get them onto the floor. They seem to have a much different method of deciding what was moving. Yeah, there, at times it felt like they had a short list of things they knew they needed to get done and they, they were gonna work at it. Uh, at other times it felt like some of these committees, and I'm not gonna single out any of them, I mean, I'm going General Assembly wide, some of the committees felt like they were meeting because they felt like they needed to meet. Not that they had anything pressing to get done, but that mm. that was just their duty to meet. Um, you know, House Education did had a, had a handful of meetings. Um, I know one was 
kind of a roller coaster what was canceled and then not canceled and then canceled again and then we're having it right the second kind of thing and uh, uh, just you know that was just the nature of the session um, with with everything being up and down yeah I think it's amazing um, how efficient you can be when you have to <laughs> um, it's yes. shocking isn't it <laughs> and to really condense the session down into two weeks and be done uh that was impressive uh, it was impressive nonetheless even though i'm sure quite a few ups and downs and and, 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 and i'll say they were efficient with they were efficient and also incredibly inefficient with the way they're you know the house had to do the voting i mean yeah. if they had i mean take that out of it and then all of a sudden you maybe are are no joke maybe cutting two days off of the session and still getting the same amount of work done <laughs> Wow. Yeah, and, and for those of you who don't know, the House is three times bigger than the Senate. The Senate has 56 members, the House has 180. So that's when, I mean, no matter how they voted, unless they have everybody sitting in their seat mashing the button, it's going to take longer. But that's one reason why it took as long as it did. Um, I'd also say that, I mean, considering the uniqueness of the circumstances and everybody was struggling to figure out what it means and how do you proceed how do you have public meetings how do you how do you do anything you do um related to the session in the midst of mask wearing and social distancing and uh making sure everybody's using hand sanitizer and all those kinds of things how do you limit the number of people in any given place and still function as a government um, with the general assembly um, there are a lot of questions, and and I thought that they they did pretty well. There were some things I probably would have done differently, but um, considering that you, they really kind of had to make up the rules as they went, I thought they did they did well. Um, the budget process ended up much better than it looked like, and I mean they just struggled to figure out where to cut. But in the budget, I, I mean. The pandemic and the cuts and the loss of revenue, that's a huge hurdle anyways, but when you're in the Senate and you lose your, your chairman um, and that's mm -hmm. thrown in, in the middle yes. of all this, that's, you know, uh, Chairman Tillery, you know, who took on this role during the pandemic, uh, during the suspension, just absolutely kind of knocked it out of the park. Um, yeah, he did a great job. I think everyone agrees with that. He, that, that was impressive to be able to step in and take over such such big shoes to fill and to have done such a good job yeah and he really did and he stepped up and he showed great leadership and and i was just impressed you know you never know how somebody who steps into a, a committee leadership role is going to be able to and he honestly in that position to chamber leadership role is going to step in and kind of take over how they're going to lead and what kind of what kind of strength they're going to have there and, and it was impressive to see him come in and just kind of take it over and just, just purely make it his own um, in his own way and, and run that budget process from the Senate side and, and get things squared away. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's dive into a few of these, these bills. Uh, why don't, um, you know, it's a good transition. Why don't we start in with the, with the budget? Okay. Um, I, I think we, we, we've talked a little bit about it um, and you can go back to, the Capitol Watch, I think it's day 39, yeah, and see it really <clears throat> split out there um, and what they did. One of, the, one of the things in the budget that 
caused a good bit of discussion um, were the changes to the GOSA budget, uh, the Governor's Office of Student Achievement. Um, there were a lot of, of big changes there, shifting of funds from that agency over to the Department of Education for similar functions. And it was interesting because there's always been, um, since that office was created as part of the A-plus Education Reform Act, and it was originally the Office of Education Accountability, um, and so there's always been complaints that it duplicates the Department of Education um, in many ways. And so when Governor Kemp went in, um, it seemed like he really was ready just to get rid of it because he's always talked about on the campaign and, and in his term of office, getting rid of duplication across state government and limiting that. So um, I think the changes to GOSA ended up kind of falling under that category and where the department was doing things, then shift the money from there over to them. And there's some specific things under the Governor's Office of Student Achievement, the uh, Governor's uh, Honors Program is under them, um, the Growing Readers, uh, the Leadership Academy um, that was started just a couple of years ago is under them. And so the things that are specific to them are, are funded, but there was a big change with that. And the formalized, they formalized the moving over the, the funds for the chief turnaround officer, is that correct? Yeah, and that was interesting. They, def they totally defunded the chief turnaround office. And it was particularly interesting because one of the bills that passed and the governor signed um, includes uh, the content of a bill from 2019 that made a lot of changes in the chief turnaround program and shifted it from the state board over to the superintendent, uh, the state superintendent and to the governor. And so if we're gonna defund it, I, I thought that whole part of that bill would be stricken, but it, it's in there. So I guess statutorily, we still have a chief turnaround office, but it is not funded. Yeah, I mean, for all intents and purposes, that that office is, is no longer existing. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, I guess you had to do some of the language stuff because, you know, if you recall, Eric Thomas left the, the role and they put Stephanie Johnson, who's the head of the Department of Education School Improvement Division, made her the de uh, facto chief turnaround officer. Um, I guess she's, is she interim or she the actual CTA? They assigned the duties, but I don't think her title changed. Okay. Um, and so now it's just kind of there. Yeah, it's. It's just something I think they did just to make sure that down the road, they wouldn't be in this situation again. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. when you need to fund something like this and you take all the money away, um, you, you know what that's doing. I mean, you're abolishing that, that department for all mm -hmm. purposes. Yeah. yeah. So for all the specifics, um, people can, can check out gsba.com and Capital Watch online and go to day, day 39, is that correct, for all the specific budget line items that relate to public education? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was day 39. Yeah, I believe, yeah. I believe so. Um, what are some of the other bills that, that you guys would wanna to just kind of recap and walk through? Well, you know, earlier in the session, you know, it's something that hung out there last year um, that the governor was really pushing where we're changes to the dual enrollment, dual enrollment program. Um, and that, that actually, 
passed before the suspension that's been signed um, since, but just mm -hmm. makes a few changes and um, kind of makes a cap, puts a cap in, uh, changes some eligibility requirements and kind of getting freshmen out of the program, uh, high school freshmen out of the program, um, giving them a chance to kind of settle into high school before <laughs> jumping in. And, and the, you know, we talked about this uh, last year when this came up, um, but we'll just we'll just say it again. You know, the governor, the 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 governor saw a huge explosion in the cost of this program over the last few years, and re recognized that they couldn't continue down this path. And so that's why he kind of saw this as necessary, just because you can't you couldn't continue to afford it. Um, and even more, I mean, again, this passed before the um, before the suspension and before the pandemic. But I mean, even looking back on it now, you know probably a good, good place to find places to save if you're cutting across the board. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, one of the biggest changes to the program is the cap on the number of hours. They can um, only get 30 hours under dual enrollment and the limitation on what those hours can be in. Um, so I think those are the biggest changes in that. Another bill that actually was left over from 2019 was Senate Bill 68. A lot of people forgot about this one, um, but Senate Bill 68, it, well, it, in its final form in 2019 and the way it passed this year, it became a Christmas tree bill in 2019, so they threw other stuff in it, but it started out being about financial management of local school districts. There was a study committee um, that was held regarding the, the issues around financial management, um, the Department of Audits had start had a, a running list of districts that were uh, considered high risk by them um, by a certain set of factors that they uh, graded, for lack of a better term, um, districts on. And Senator Freddie Powell Sims was concerned a lot of the districts were in her Senate district. And um, we did work with, with Senator Sims on the bill. Um, trying to help her get to where she wanted to go um, and, and got some changes into what she wanted. So the focus really was on training rather than any kind of punitive measures toward these districts. But some of the things that, that are in it related to the finance part, um, if you remember in the Georgia Code, those of you who have sat through the policy workshop, anytime the last few years. Um, frequently, um, they, our presenters go back to this code that lists um, what school boards are supposed to do. Um, and financial management was added to the skills that school boards are supposed to have. The candidate affidavit was changed so that now a candidate would also have to certify that they have in fact received all the required training um, and by the way, this bill is not effective till July 1st next year. So, and I'm not going to go through the whole bill. I was just going to tell you a few things that are in it just because people have forgotten it. Um, and the board is supposed to get a financial report every month. Um, and um, if you remember the code section about micromanaging um, and you're not supposed to micromanage and the board does policy and holds the superintendent accountable and the superintendent does operations, um, there's now an added line or will be address effective that requesting and reviewing financial documents are not micromanaging. Um, there's consequences for being designated a high risk district. 
Um, the oath for the superintendents was amended related to financial management. Um, so there, there's a whole host of things. And then, as I said, that one became the Christmas tree. It includes the chief turnaround officer information. Um, it also um, includes the requirement for public comments at a board meeting. Um, the chair can limit the time that a speaker can speak and the number of speakers. And then we have also included, and I'll let Scott do this one, House Bill 86, which also yeah. passed on its own. Yeah, House Bill 86, uh, that was one, that was a bill that they made sure they got through because um, it was included in this bill and then it passed on its own all in the last three days of session. Like it was a, it was a pretty quick turnaround. Um, this is a teacher eval bill. It allows them to um, go in and appeal some uh, appeal some of their evaluations if they're deemed unsatisfactory or ineffective on the uh, summative uh, evaluation. So not one of the individual ones throughout the year, but the summative evaluation. They'll be able to come in and, and appeal that and take it through in the boards and, and local uh, systems will have to come up with a plan uh, to set through that process. Um, really interesting. You kind of going from the from the legislative side of this, an interesting process because, like I said, this bill was in two places. They made sure it got through, and the bill the language is exactly the same in both. So they really paid attention to it. The original bill, uh, House Bill eighty six, um, passed last year, um, and kind of just died it just didn't get any traction it just was kind of there yeah, they couldn't, it, that got out of senate ed but they couldn't get out of senate rules to the for a senate vote yeah it just it kind of yeah it just was kind of there and 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 then we even heard early before the suspension that no nah, that's you know the issues with it last year the issues with it this year it's just kind of gonna kind of hang there um tommy benton in the house who's the sponsor um was able to work work with uh, Senate Rules Chair uh, Mullis to get uh, to get a deal on this, and the two of them worked together to kind of work on the final language and get this through. Okay, and the the last one we were going to mention was Senate Bill three sixty seven. That was the assessment bill. It's a governor's bill, which surprisingly he hasn't signed yet he has until august 5th to finish signing bills or uh, issue his vetoes um so i um, don't see any reason why he wouldn't sign this one but this one was the effort to get at limiting some of the assessments so they eliminated a few of the assessments um also allows the state board to decide how much to count the end of course test related to a a final uh, score. Um, what else was in there? Uh, final five weeks for the testing window. Oh yeah. Oh right. Yeah, which I know was a big was a big push, you know, and that was something that when we kind of shifting into a different area, when there was discussion about the statewide school calendar um, two years ago, at this point. Mm -hmm. um, some of the talk that came up was, you know what, they're taking these tests too early in the year, and then we're just wasting, you know, five, six weeks of, this, of the, the school year because they've already taken their end-of-course tests. This don't, these don't matter. 
Um, and so I think this was a way to address that and kind of in a roundabout way by bumping it back um, closer to the end of the school year and, and, and giving more time for instruction while also trying to build in time for remediation after the results came back. Okay. Well, that's uh, quite a bit. Um, I know we have a few, few bills that did not pass, but worth mentioning. Um, you guys want to walk through a few of those? Yeah, I mean, we, we mentioned the return to work bill, um, how that one didn't, didn't pass, and then the teacher uh, tax credit tuition reimbursement hybrid bill that kind of that we, we talked about a minute ago. Um, one that stands out, though, that kind of popped up near the end of the first half of the session was the paid parental leave, which would have provided, um, like basically what I just said, parental, paid parental leave for, for new parents. Um, there was a lot of fighting uh, during this, this second half of session. You know, they, they saved some things up, it seemed like, between the break, during the break, uh, so they could to fight about. Um, and this paid parental leave bill was one of them. The, before we got, before we left in March, it passed out of the House. It was over in the Senate. Well, the Senate took it originally and, and gutted it and put in a, a legislator uh, legislator uh, pay cut uh, bill. So basically cut their their uh, salaries to match the overall pay cut that was going to go in the budget. The House, whose bill this originally was, wanted the, the parental um, uh, leave language put back in. So they stripped it again, put their language back in. Um, and there was a little bit of a standoff in the last few days. Ultimately, uh, it didn't pass. They used another bill, another education bill, actually, to put in the legislator pay cut, but the paid parental leave uh, didn't make it through the Senate. Um, that, depending on what the what the financials look like at the end of this year, uh, as we go into 2021, will we'll kind of dictate whether or not the Senate takes us back up or if the, the House pushes forward again. Uh, we'll just have to see. Okay. And then mm -hmm. the, the final one there, the teacher tax credit. Yeah, we, we talked about that. That was the tax oh, that's credit, right. loan right. forgiveness right. and whatever. Um, so what's next? Um, is there, has there been anything discussed uh, of what we're looking at going forward? Um, I know most focus right now has been on school reopening. Um, that's been kind of the, the subject that's dominated the conversation. Um, I know there, there's always things hanging out there like, like the voucher and the, the Tim Tebow bill. Are those things still hanging out there or are we kind of just, need, because of this pandemic, just refocusing into getting kids back in school? Well, I think what we're gonna see is kind of tying this to, tying the return to school and vouchers together. We're seeing a push. Um, there are a lot of, folks out there who are unhappy um, with just, you know, just with everything, you know, we're in a pandemic, we're four or five months in at this point, everybody's just kind of on edge. Um, and now the school reopening is kind of pushing that. And so you're seeing that manifest into a broad push for more vouchers and more school choice. Um, you're seeing it on a national level, I think there was legislation introduced this week uh, in the Senate, the U.S. Senate, that would allow for 
school students from schools that don't reopen to kind of take their money and go elsewhere. I think you're starting to see a bigger groundswell of that just among, you know, maybe the, maybe the national polls don't show it. Um, but I know from around here, just talking to people with, with students, you know, of, of that age who are going, Hey, you know, we're missing out or we're missing out and, and you know, we're, we're, we're frustrated by it. And, uh, you know, everybody's frustrated about a lot of things right now, um, just from this. So how the next, what is it? We're recording on July 24th. What do the next five months look like? What do we look like when session gavels back in? will tell us a lot about what the voucher conversation is going to be. Yeah. I think one thing we've <laughs> really, really learned, um, is that there's, there's anything can happen. I think, I think that's one of the biggest takeaways from 2020 is that it's very difficult to really plan on one thing because we just get hit and turned and have to do a 180 and, and figure out something new. So um, it has been, has been quite a year uh, for, for everything. Uh, Angela, is there anything you want to add to that? Well, I'd, I'd say if we had a legislative garden, the perennials in it would be the voucher bill and the Tim Tebow. Um, there are groups that strongly back both ideas. And uh, if there's anybody out there uninitiated on what Tim Tebow means, it's allowing homeschoolers to participate in the extracurricular activities of, <clears throat> of a public school. Um, those keep cropping up and the people who support that idea will keep right on going. The Senate had passed one version in 2019. The House created its own version in 2020. Um, so differing idea, even the people who support it don't support it in the same way. So there's a lot of different factions around it. The same thing really with school choice and vouchers. Everybody that supports vouchers for sending kids to private school with public money don't support it under the same terms. And so it's a broad topic and we've actually heard it, as Scott said, more at the federal level in the last few weeks than we have at the state level. And um, there's a current effort as they work on the next stimulus bill to set aside 10% of the money or so that would go to K-12 to have it go to private schools um, for vouchers, not to private schools themselves, but to send students to private schools. Um, in addition to a proposal for a tax credit, much like the one we have here for income tax credits for the student scholarship organizations. Um, there are those in the voucher world who have tried to seize upon the opportunity of the pandemic and say, well, if those public schools aren't getting the job done, if they aren't opening and having kids in face-to-face, -face, then just let the kids have the money and go to a private school. And that would, of course, be presuming that the private schools are, in fact, going to be open face-to-face. -face. Some are, some aren't, and some are doing a hybrid model. So it's all over the place. Yeah. Um, and I think just as you said, Justin, things have been changing so quickly this year that who knows where we're going to end up. And so the arguments that we pose against it don't change no matter pandemic or not. And those who support it, their arguments don't change pandemic or not. So yeah, um, we fight on. Right. And uh, you're kind of touching on something you mentioned, Angela, part of this new 
you know, we don't have a, we don't have another stimulus bill yet um, from Congress. Right. Um, but what it sounds like is going to be part of the Republican proposal is uh, a large chunk, uh, at least a hundred billion, um, going back to, to schools to kind of make up some of the, the loss in revenue and the loss of funding that they're all facing. Um, where there are going to be sticking points, though, and, and it sounds like from from D.C. it's going to come down. You get the money if you're open. You don't get the money if you stay closed. Um, and so that's something to keep an eye on if that sticks, mm -hmm. if, that, if, if the president agrees. And it sounds like he will. Um, sounds like that actually is coming from the president. If, uh, if the Democrats and, and led by Speaker Pelosi and, and some of the other membership, they're going to agree to that. I don't know, but it sounds like the president's going to be on one side of that, um, pushing for you get funding if you're open. Yeah. See, mm -hmm. there seems to be some things being introduced even this week um, about ensuring that there's options. Um, but yeah, there's uh, lots, lots going on. It's a uh, election year. Um, a lot of things potential to change, but. Um, yeah, I guess that's the big thing we've learned this year is one thing that doesn't change is change. So, yeah, and I'll be remiss if I don't mention that our, you know, part of our delegation, Senator Purdue, um, introduced a legislation this week that would offer a grant program for for schools to buy PPE and and get get them up to speed where they need to be for for bringing students back. And so, um, I haven't read through the bill, but I just wanted to put that out there that that is out there at least that it's something that our local delegation is trying to get done. That's good to hear because that's that is a rather large expense for school districts. Um, so any parting thoughts that you both might have um, before we sign off? Just the best of luck <clears throat> to all of you in the reopening of schools and trying to pacify all the parties and make the best decisions you can. You're in a tough spot with everybody trying to give you advice and tell you what to do and how to do it, um, when to do it. Um, and I know you're hearing a lot of different voices and there's a lot of different information. The CDC just issued uh, additional guidance yesterday. Um, so good luck to all of you. Yeah, I don't, I don't envy in the decisions. Um, it's kind of a darned if you do, darned if you don't kind of thing. And the court of public opinion is going to sway both ways, uh, you know, at, at this point. But, um, you know, we look forward to look forward to hopefully having everybody back in classrooms and, and healthy here as soon as possible. Absolutely. Well, thank you both for, for all your work and the legislature this year. I know it was a, a real challenge. Um, and again, uh, you know, GSBA is always uh, ready to support the school districts and the board members and superintendents out there. Um, so please don't hesitate to, to contact us if there's something we can be of service to. And just thank you all for joining us for this episode of the GSBA Talking Ed podcast. We'll see you next time.